thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, welcome to another episode of The Real Food Reel. Today I have with me Bevan McKinnon, who is the Director of FITTER, a triathlon and coaching exercise services in New Zealand, a Level 3 triathlon accredited coach, a personal trainer, a strength and conditioning coach, and a certified member of the New Zealand Register of Exercise Professionals. Bevan is also an elite level triathlete and has competed at the World Champs at Olympic long course and Ironman distances. Bevan is a previous winner of the Taupo Half Ironman and more recently, Challenge Wanaka Half. This year, Bevan won the overall age group race at the New Zealand Ironman, coming home in an amazing time of 9 hours 55 seconds. What's really exciting about this more recent win is that Grant has, uh, sorry, Bevan has been working alongside one of our real food, real experts, Grant Schofield. You can listen to our podcast with Grant in previous episodes, but Bevan and Grant have been working together on a low-carb, high-fat and metabolic efficiency approach to endurance sports, and I'm really excited to introduce to you Bevan McKinnon. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Steph. Thanks so much for coming on board. No problems. Great. So before we dive in, let's share with our listeners a little bit more about you, your story, and why you're here today? Um, I'm probably here because I fuel most of my exercise and life on fat. So that's one of the reasons that I'd be asked on the show. But probably a lot to do with the fact that as an elite athlete, I've been able to combine a low-carb, high-fat approach to my sport and also just to my you know, my general day-to-day eating. And I've been really, really successful with it to date. So I come from probably a lifelong history of being a triathlete. I was a a soccer player when I was younger, but I've sort of dabbled in and around the sport, firstly as an athlete and then moved into the coaching side of it about 15 years ago. So it's been a passion of mine, and I think I'd, I'd be the first one to admit that the reason that I'm involved in the sport is it gives me justification to go out and train 20 hours a week. So without an Ironman or a long-distance triathlon to compete in, I think people would think I was a bit mad, so I occasionally (laughs) have to sign up and do a race to justify training so much. (laughs) Um, So that's a little bit about where I sort of got into the sport. But primarily in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of research alongside Grant and looked at sports performance and endurance setting and how people can optimize their metabolic efficiency and more so move towards becoming just a a much more efficient fat burner. Yeah, that's really exciting. So having been in the sport for 15 years, you've probably seen quite a huge evolution from, say, what the traditional sports nutrition advice was to to what you're really experimenting in and and how you're coaching your athletes today. Oh, definitely. Um, It's... I think one of the things for me as a coach is that it was a number of years ago where I realized that, you know, I shouldn't be afraid of bucking the trends Mm. and that, you know, you just can't take verbatim that what's happened in the past is always going to work or is always correct. And and it's been a source of almost a little bit of pride in, in the last couple of years, especially that I started to look at, you know, Ironman competitions and the, the number of people that weren't able to perform up to their expectations and ended up just decelerating um, far too early in the race for what their fitness level suggests they were capable of. I, you know, it wasn't, it didn't take me long to, to arrive at the doorstep to say, hey, there's something happening within these athletes' engine that's just not providing sufficient fuel to last for the duration of the event that they're entered for. So so that's when we started having a conversation and a chat around the fireplace about, you know, what's going on and what's going wrong. 
And this is this is where where Grant and I first started looking at it, along with Mickey Willardin, a nutritionist who works on the podcast with me, our own uh, our own Fitter Radio podcast. And we started to look at metabolic efficiency. Yeah, it's really exciting. I think it's fantastic that we can step away from what we've known for so long and and really dive in and look at you know what is the approach that that makes us most efficient as endurance athletes. And yeah, question question what we've been told for such a long time. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it was uh, listening to a Bob Sieberhor interview on a podcast that sort of set this in motion for me. And up until that point, I actually didn't even know that you could test to derive what was the composition of fuel being used at, at varying intensities of exercise. So that was that was a, a bit of an aha moment for me because we essentially are working on a closed energy system. You know, there's a, a finite amount of glycogen that we can store in the muscle and liver. And I, I knew that that we were we're compromised in terms of how much carbohydrate we can actually digest on an hourly basis when we are exercising. So those two things combined said to me, well, if I can determine for each of my athletes how much carbohydrate and how much fat is fueling their exercise, then I can start to work out straight away whether it's going to be them running out of fuel or them running out of fitness that's going to uh, affect their race the most. Yeah, it's a great point. I think when you really break it down, it makes so much sense. We know that carbohydrates are limited. So for an event that's nine hours or up to 17 hours for some people, you, you want to be able to tap into your reserves, which is essentially unlimited, provided you're good at accessing it, correct? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, uh, once I started looking at the science and then I started looking at what is a typical uh, modern diet, you know, we, we, we've we just got the food pyramid completely wrong. Upside uh, down. <laughs> yeah, just upside down. And, and, and then you look at the the sugar and the carbohydrate that's hidden away in, in our processed foods. It just meant, you know, that the body's response to eating those kinds of foods, the, the insulin reaction, um, it was actually just preventing us from actually having even the the capabilities even at low levels of exercise intensity to actually support that that exercise with any of our fat stores it, it was i mean it kickstarted a process for me where i would have taken 20 to 25 athletes in after initially testing myself using a metabolic cart and it was it was shocking to see how unable you know, almost 90 to 95% of these athletes were in being able to access their fat stores. And then when we looked at their food diaries, it just became so blatantly obvious that it was a biochemistry reaction that was occurring that was preventing the brain being able to access those fat stores. So for these athletes that were all signed up to me as a coach to get into half Ironman or Ironman, the light bulb went on. It said it didn't matter what kind of training I gave them, unless they could consume 800 grams of carbohydrate an hour, which is impossible, <laughs> they, they were all going to run out well before the finish line. And so it, would have, it was going to be a nutritional deficiency that was going to derail their progress and their aspirations in the race. It wasn't going to be a fitness or a lack of fitness. Yeah, it's really interesting because you see people doing such hard training and they basically devote their life to the, the Ironman build and then on the day things fall apart because they run out of, of what they're trying to use as their petrol tank, so to speak. So selling it that way, I think, to athletes is really important. When you do clarify that it's the insulin that completely switches off fat burning, they can start to really think about making wiser food choices day to day. Oh, definitely. And I mean, we're, we're, we're bombarded by sports nutrition marketing. You know, it's, it's de rigueur to have your Powerade or your electrolyte carbohydrate drink at the side of the pool with you for sessions <laughs> less than a, less than an hour in duration. You know, it's like you have to refuel immediately after that session. Let's have a gel before the session. Let, let's do everything we humanly can to put a, a massive barricade up for the brain to be able to access its fat stores. And the situation is was so obvious to me that we had to do something about it nutritionally. I mean, there are some, some tricks of the trade that you can do training-wise that can help improve your, your or, or almost shunt or force your body into fat metabolism. 
but it really came down to what people were doing on a day-to-day basis in terms of their general nutrition. Yeah, that's where it's huge. You think about an hour of training as being 4% of your day. It's really, really counts so much more as to what you do outside of that window and and why the day-to-day nutrition is a huge part of it. And definitely, and I, I mean, I think also when you talk about ultra distance training, you talk about, um, you know, there's such a great propensity for athletic endeavors of the general population to err towards longer is better. Mm. You know, I think those A-type personalities were thanking the stars once Ironman turned up on the horizon because no longer was a marathon good enough. <laughs> um, let's go out and flog ourselves for 15 hours. But the key here is is that when we look at just, just some basic calculations around metabolic efficiency, you know, most people can absorb nutrition as they exercise. But given the fact and, you know, it's it's like we have a bathtub full of carbohydrate to start with and then we pull the plug on the bathtub and it starts rushing out the bottom as we start to move, but we're only drip feeding it in by turning the tap on at the top, a very minimal amount. There was always going to be an equation where we started to run out of glycogen and also our ingested carbohydrate. But the key here is most people's training sessions, probably in isolation, didn't go long enough to really experience that true sort of bonking sensation. Mm. And it wasn't till race day where they actually started to go up to six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen hours of exercise. So so they were still convinced that a high carbohydrate diet was gonna work for them because, you know, if they're only doing a one, two, three, four hour session, well, even a carbohydrate burner can get through that. But what was happening is that once we got to the real test, which is half Ironman or Ironman, you don't have to go very far to canvas the participants in one of those races to work out that the vast majority of people at some stage before the finish line blew up. So it's so true, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges with Ironman nutrition. You don't get to replicate it in training because you never do a 10-hour day or a 15-hour day. And so those shorter sessions only give you a small window of what you're capable of absorbing per hour. And it's actually almost impossible to replicate that for, say, double the distance or or duration. Oh, definitely. You know, and, and these people are actually, most of them are quite tolerant of carbohydrate. You know, they're so used to taking it in that... The bigger guys and so forth, it's, it's quite incredible how much carbohydrate they can absorb per hour. Um, so they do get to buy themselves a little bit more time and a little bit greater distance before their tank actually still runs out. But it will always run out because, as I say, if you're unable to access your fat stores and you're supplying, you know, 70 or 80% of the fuel that's going towards Ironman intensity effort is coming from carbohydrate stores, you're still burning a lot more and at a far greater rate than what you can actually digest and absorb. So the equation's always going to have you running out before the finish line. Yeah, that bath analogy is spot on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> that was a, yeah it's pouring out the bottom and you're drip feeding it in the top. And is this something that you used to do when you first dabbled well, with your sports nutrition? Well, it was more the fact that I was actually pretty successful at Ironman racing before I went LCHF. Mm. I I think what LCHF has bought me is greater longevity at the pointy end of the field as a master's athlete. (laughs) (laughs) Be nice. But 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 what I'm what I'm sort of saying is the way that I had achieved because when we first put me on the metabolic cart, I was actually pretty good. Okay. Uh, but I had probably been able to achieve that because I had been told um, in my formative stages of being coached by by other coaches was to conduct a lot of my long bike rides and not eat anything for the first two to three hours. Mm. Um, so I always sort of trained fasted and. Before I got any good at triathlon and got a nutrition sponsor, I didn't really think I could afford sports nutrition as well. So (laughs) I I avoided that as well. So I sort of actually had a low processed or refined diet and I did a lot of fasted training. However, I still got a great jump in metabolic efficiency when I did go LCHF. Mm. So, So even though I was a good fat burner, I became an even better fat burner. 
Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I meet many athletes who are already accidentally doing the fasted training simply because it's probably too early for them to eat with their morning sessions. So it is great that many people are almost accidentally working on their metabolic efficiency, but it's certainly the, what they do after the session and what they do for the rest of the day that can really limit them, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. And also I think, you know, uh, that's all well and good whilst you're in the sport and you're using the sport to maintain good body composition and health. But when you step away from the sport and you're not fasted training the entire time, then you may return to a high carbohydrate diet. So I think what the LCHF method or, or a real food approach to eating or a whole food provides the ability to still manage body composition and not have to rely on fasted training to achieve it. Right, okay. And so let's sort of dive in a little bit more to that work you've been doing with Grant that I mentioned in the intro because there was a, a really great article that Grant had uh, wrote earlier this year titled How to Win the Ironman on LCHF or Low Carb High Fat. And I know we've sort of covered bits and pieces so far, but I'm really excited about that project specifically. So can you share with us more about that and, and what exactly you did? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I would probably be the most unstructured person or athlete personally. Um, I coach in a completely different way, so don't tell my athletes that. <laughs> but it was very, like, because I understand the science and, you know, can deal, you know, at a slightly higher level of application of nutrition and training and the like, um, we, we didn't really have any hard and fast rules. Um, what we did know, again, from researching Sibaha's work, was that we did want to reduce carbohydrate. Um, initially, we felt that possibly a ketogenic approach would be a way to go, but I found that overly restrictive. Mm. And because of the high level of exercise that I was doing, I felt that I could still maybe get away with being more metabolically flexible than just being um, looking to become straight or going into ketosis or looking at a ketogenic approach. So we started to take out what were my staple foods. Um, mm. all, all breads disappeared. Rice was a, a moderate part of my diet. I was never a big pasta eater. You know, it, it was quite quick to realize about, you know, the effect of, of insulin response and its knock-on effect to leptin and compromising what leptin does in the body and, and telling the brain when the stomach is full. Yeah. It didn't take me long to realize that when I thought about the typical foods that would have that insulin response in my diet, uh, like r white rices and, and very refined carbohydrates, I could eat those things till the cows came home and I would just never feel full. You know, if I went for a Thai meal or, or, or I felt hungry and went for toast as a snack, well, six or eight pieces of toast would disappear and you just wouldn't even know it, you know. And if I went for a Thai meal, I would just be calling the white rice waiter over just <laughs> continuously <laughs> saying, feed me, feed me. Um, so we, we really took those out. Um, mm. I had that did obviously make a, a big change into what I had to look at in terms of my most common foods in my diet. But also, I didn't have any problems with increasing the fat intake. So fish was already in my diet, nuts, uh, the cheese came up in a big way, cream came in, coconut oil went into virtually everything I ate. Um, and it did surprise me at how I naturally started to eat less because of that feeling of fullness and that awareness of when I was full started to become more obvious from what it used to be when I, when I had more refined carbohydrate in there. So that was the first big change. And then I just continued to train in the same way that I've always trained. But what shocked me was how far I could take fasted training. Right. And, and look, I'll be the first to put a hands up. This was really a two-year process to get to the point of being able to execute a nine-hour Ironman. Mm. We did do an Ironman the year before, but I went on the Tim Noakes theory of I think I can do an Ironman as a fat-adapted athlete and not do it on any fuel. So the first approach at New Zealand Ironman, I was six hours into it having only eaten 100 grams of cashew nuts. Right. Uh, and that... Uh, came round to haunt me. Um, so I cramped up pretty badly at the moment I started the run to the point that I actually couldn't finish the race. And 
and in all honesty, that was devastating to Grant because um, we'd we'd made a fairly public sort of performance about how we were going to, you know, do really well at the New Zealand Ironman as a fat adapted athlete. Um, but we went back to the drawing board and realised that we probably, um, I now subscribe to the theory of train low but race high. Me too. <laughs> uh, and I'm not, and the reason that I say that is because I'm out there to try and win a race. And it, and although Tim Noakes can convince a lot of people that you may not need any carbohydrate at all during an event, well, I'm actually going out there and racing it probably between 75 to 80% intensity. And that's sort of in that area where you are going to be burning a little bit more carbohydrate, even as a fat adapted athlete. Mm. And so the second time around, we didn't change anything. Um, the second time around is all I did was I still trained blow, LCHF approach to nutrition, did virtually exactly the same training for the event. But this time I went in with a full high carbohydrate nutrition plan. And I went from a DNF the, the year before to this year at New Zealand Ironman, I I came out in the league group in the swim and from there on in, I basically performed an individual time trial. I rode off the front of the age group pack and came off the bike with about a six or seven minute lead. And then I extended that out to a 15 minute lead by the end of the marathon. And so I won the age group race there by over 15 minutes from the second place guy. And that's that's just a a massive, massive margin. Mm. Um, and that was, I put that down to being highly fat adapted and then going in there and having a very clear and to be fair, I, I, it's, I can absorb a huge amount of carbohydrate during an event. So I sort of get the best of both worlds. Yeah, absolutely love that story because it's such a good um, I guess, indication of the journey that it is, like the fact that it took you two years is a, is a big take-home message for our listeners that you don't just, you know, start lowering your carbohydrates, train faster and, and win an Ironman. It is a journey to get metabolically efficient. And, you know, you even said that you started from a fantastic place and it still took you that time. So working on it and certainly refining it, making those changes is, is hugely important. Oh, definitely. Look, I mean, as I said before, I'm a good athlete, but I'm, I, there are more gifted athletes out there than me. You know, I, I don't even believe I have the body type. I mean, uh, I still sit around either side of 80 kgs when I do a race. You know, uh, I mean, I ran a, a 303 marathon at this year's New Zealand Ironman, and I'd be the, probably one of the only 80 kg athletes running around that can run that fast. But the only reason I can run that fast is because I'm the guy that's nowhere near close to running out of fuel. Yeah, you, you know, I'm the guy. My heart rate. Um, there was no cardiac drift. There was my pace and heart rate were completely stable throughout the entire marathon. I mean, there's this muscular fatigue, and you're always going to feel the wear and tear of running a marathon. But there were no other symptoms or signs that fuel was running out. Uh, there was no gastric upset. There are other people who the the second half of the marathon they start to fade badly. Um, people say to me when they see me race, especially over the last couple of years, that you seem to have quite a poker face. You don't give away a, a much emotion. And I say that's more because I'm not suffering as much. Mm. I'm not at the, the absolute last gram of carbohydrate in the system um, and feeling the effects of, of, of potential bonking. I'm the guy that's still, you know, physically, the fitness levels are, are definitely under stress. But the provision of fuel to those muscles is still working optimally. Yeah, and that's the key. You've got that plan in place now and, and, and certainly your fuel reserves are essentially unlimited, which allows you to keep performing at that top end. Oh, definitely. And, and, that's, and that's what I say. Is, you know, I went away to the ITU Long Distance World Champs in China in September and you know, the confidence that I have as an athlete now, which is born out of understanding the the two vital components to long distance racing, which is getting the optimal levels of fitness, but then having a fuel tank that knows how to provide best service for the longest period of time. And, you know, I won a gold medal in my age group there. Uh, I was third amateur overall in the race. And so this is a world champs and, you know, 43 years of age. There were only a couple of 20-year-olds that beat me at that race. And, and as I say, I, it's not because I'm the best athlete in the world. It's, it's just understanding how the two most important components of long-distance racing fit together. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I love one of the points you made earlier around how your how your satiety had really changed with LCHF. And this is one of the things that I really in, encourage my athletes to tap into. It's they, Athletes essentially think they're hungry because they're doing so much exercise when really it's because they're eating too many carbohydrates and they're on that insulin, that blood sugar roller coaster all day. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how you teach your athletes around that satiety and that and those food choices that link in with that? Well, it's it's really funny because the moment you have this conversation, it's like the conversation that's having happening in the general health community at the moment about lower carbohydrate eating. People are still loath to increase the fat. Absolutely. Know, at the end of the day, they're just too loath to increase the fat. And and I continually have to return to the message that it's if you have fat in the presence of insulin, then you're going to have some problems. Mm. So if you can minimize the insulin response, then the chances are if you're choosing the right fat sources, there's there's be, going to be a very low percentage of, of health risk for you. Um, you've always got to take a horses for courses approach because some people may have hereditary predispositions and the like. But in general, it's just about nine times out of 10, it's, it's have you embraced fat? Because that conversation is so difficult. People are just still, they'll say, yep, yep, lowered carbohydrate, lowered carbohydrate, but I've really pumped up the protein. And they don't realize that there's still, you know, a moderate insulin response to protein. And, but they just really are just so fearful of fattening up their meals, you know, and I'm not talking about just eating tons of butter, but just, you know, you know, subtly increasing what you're cooking in, you know, the coconut oils, the olive oils, you know, don't be afraid of having butter, just looking at reducing that insulin response. And when I think people start to understand that it's the insulin that they're trying to manage a bit more, then they become more accepting of increasing the fat sources. And if they can do that, then I don't think it's a matter of convincing them that their appetite has changed. They will just change. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's it's why you have to get the approach right. Like you certainly can't go low carb, low fat because you'll be starving and miserable and you'll ruin your metabolism. And you certainly can't go high fat, high carb either because then you won't get to your body compositional goals and then you'll wonder why the approach quote unquote doesn't work it's yeah. really about getting the balance of the the right carbohydrates for you on the low side to keep your insulin down and then the fats to provide you with that nutrient density that satiety obviously fuel performance recovery all the really relative indicators yeah it, it definitely and i mean even to simplify it further you know they talk about shopping around the, the outskirts of the supermarket, you know, staying away from the refined and processed foods because at the end of the day, as much as it started as an LCHF approach for me, it probably just ended up more a whole foods paleo style diet. But then I don't steer away from dairy. You know, it's it's probably where I get the predominance of my fat sources. And and that kind of mixture just works really well for me. I mean, I, I just love the foods I eat. Uh, when I've introduced it in a, uh, you know, because I do still work in a general population sense just for health and fitness, um, to most red-blooded males, it's the best way to eat that they've ever been exposed to. You know, all those things that they thought were the devil's food, that fat on the bacon, the fat around the steak, all those things are now blessed for them <laughs> I know, and that's what's so good food just tastes so amazing right oh absolutely absolutely and and i've i've had wonderful success with morbidly obese clients who for guys have never have thought that they will never be able to lose weight because just through sheer calorie restriction using the old style food pyramid I mean, it's just a yo-yo. It's just a merry-go-round of lose weight, gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, with always that gain weight being more than the weight they lost. And and these guys get to eat, you know, and they get to eat foods that they thought were completely wrong for them and not only lose weight, but just their general health parameters improve. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you get the same thing. But, you know, I'm known as the nutritionist that tells their clients they can eat bacon and everybody loves me for uh, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the one guy in particular that I can that remember off the top of my head, as I said, you can drink red wine, 
not by the gallon load and you can keep those steaks and bacon in there and you can have your bacon and eggs and you can have your steak and vegetables and you can wash it down with the odd glass of red wine and he just he wanted to kiss me and <laughs> that's amazing and 40 for a guy that had sat around 150 kgs most of his life to to be just above 100 kgs now and living a life that he doesn't feel like he's dieting you know to to offer that potential to someone is is really rewarding I couldn't agree more. It, it, it's so sustainable and that's what's really key. I think, you know, we know that the calorie equ- equation is completely false and it certainly just sets you up to be hungry and miserable and metabolically dysregulated. And the amazing thing about LCHF, it's the exact opposite. There's plenty of food available, there's no calorie counting and there's certainly no restrictions. So it's a lifelong approach. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in saying that, though, I mean, I still like for those people at the other end of the spectrum who thoroughly embrace it, (laughs) um, that, yeah, if you still overeat that fat side of things and you're not doing anything to burn it up, um, then you can still put on weight because I do have those people who think it's the magic pill. And also those people who hear the word ketogenic. And just think, you know, and, and, and it's a terrible generalization, but a lot of women have approached us and going, you know, that ketogenic diet just sounds like, you know, it's what I've been looking for all my life. I just don't think we need to become that precise about it. And it, that can take away some of the enjoyment of what I say is real life. But um, that perfect combination of a little bit of exercise, um, just making sure that you don't go too ballistic on the fat side of things, but really reducing the carbohydrates and then off you go. Happy days. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can overdo anything. So it is important to keep things in check. But the great thing is, is that often we find the satiety is enough to almost naturally portion control. Like you can overeat bread till the cows come home, as you said, but you really do get so well nourished and full that for the majority of people, it is quite easy to keep the portions in check. Oh, definitely. But then if you're, if you're addicted to cashew nuts like myself, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll find that putting weight on it becomes bloody easy on an LCHF diet when you, get, when you go into your post-Iron Man recovery phase. Yeah, I have this conversation most days. People, <laughs> people just can't snack on nuts because, you know, you open oh, the bag and the bag's gone. So choose what, something else, I say. <laughs> what, is a kg of cashews nuts a day too much? <laughs> it was for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you can certainly over overdo it because it it tastes so good as well yeah definitely yeah definitely but i mean as you say i mean the food choices are just fantastic uh you know you're not short of flavor you're not short of variety you're not short of options um uh, just from a pure calorie restriction standpoint on the old food pyramid you're just under eating and it's just a painful and miserable way to lose weight Oh, it's absolutely horrendous. Say no to calorie counting. (laughs) I have. Yes. So let's summarize that there just from a practical sense. Bevan, what would be your number one nutrition advice that you would give to an endurance athlete? I just think we've got to start steering clear of anything refined and processed Mm. in terms of the carbohydrate content. Even from a standpoint of even if the the fat component doesn't increase, just by choosing whole food carbohydrate choices, we're going to start to at least give the brain less insulin to deal with and a greater chance of moving towards being able to actually access their fat stores. So for those people that, that really do struggle with the word fat and just, you know, I've had nutritionists who will preach LCHF and then took a year to actually increase their fat intake themselves because they'd just been indoctrinated into what they'd been taught at university. Um, but I, I say just remove the refined and processed carbohydrate and find another more whole carbohydrate choice, and that would be the first protocol that I would suggest people make. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think it's one of those other, one of the other points that makes so much sense when you actually think about it. Obviously, nature knows best. So if it's a carbohydrate like a sweet potato or a piece of fruit that clearly is un, um, unrefined, then it, it's going to be a much better choice than something in a box, in a packet, or with a mascot. Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And and you just feel better in yourself. I mean, you, you go and finish a meal that's completely whole food. There's, there's a sense of satisfaction in that you are doing the best for your body. 
Um, and I and I think that that's wonderful. It's a holistic sense. It's a, a very real sense that we're actually doing something and fueling ourselves. And there's no guilt associated because there's too much guilt wrapped around eating and nutrition. And it's just a bittersweet journey for a lot of people. You know, we feel bad because we've eaten that, then we binge, and then we try to address that balance. And and that, that merry-go-round is just a horrible place to be. So I just think that people, when they form the habit, they walk away feeling that they're doing the best for their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. It's hugely psychological nutrition, as we know. And I think the the fact that people struggle to increase fat is tied up in that because they've spent their lives thinking they need to eat less and move more and count calories and weigh food and breaking that cycle, it doesn't happen overnight. Like I say to all my clients, you, you're in this for the long haul except it's an evolution because you can't undo those behaviours overnight but you certainly need to work on them day to day. Oh, definitely. And look, I mean, I, I, I don't envy people in your position. Um, Mickey Willard, now nutritionist on our podcast, she's definitely wholeheartedly moved down this route as well. Um, you guys have the, the hardest job. I mean, at the end of the day, I've got an Ironman in front of some athletes, and that's a big motivator to make change. You're asking people to do it in a way that they don't actually probably feel a substantial difference in, in how they feel um, immediately, and they may have to go through a very sluggish period where they actually go, this is a whole lot of crap. This isn't working for me. Um, and, that, and that, again, is, is, a, is each person's going to adapt at different rates. But, uh, yeah, the, the psychology around nutrition and the the connotations around fat, that's a real difficult message for people in your position to convince people of because we've just been indoctrinated. Yeah, so it's 50 years of lies that we're undoing. But I think yeah. the great thing about the real food revolution is that, you know, the message is certainly out there. It, it's not far and wide, but it's becoming far more ma- mainstream and people can go online and do their research and there's now fantastic resources and books available so the message is spreading so I do feel like my job as nutritionist is getting easier in that regard which is you know fantastic to see that the knowledge is there and and available yeah definitely I mean in world leaders you know Tim Noakes, Grant Schofield, um, uh, Peter Atia you know all these guys um, are out there uh, spreading that message and these people and you know you you look at Noakes and he's prepared to rip the the section on fueling for sports performance out of his his book The Law of Running because he now realizes that it 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 promoted the high carbohydrate message and when you've got guys like that that are that are prepared to about face when their books have been seen as you know, um, Bible. Yeah, the Bible. Uh, then that's a massive turn of events. Yeah, it's huge. And we all loved Tim Noakes for standing up and saying he was wrong. And at the same time, being a leader and spreading this real food message. And, and certainly from an endurance perspective, breaking down those lies that we've been told with sports nutrition and, and the companies and, and the dollar that, that is associated with that. Yeah, and, and just from sports performance to general health, high carbohydrate, refined sugar, there's chronic inflammation that, that occurs in the body when it's metabolized. That delays recovery from exercise, therefore you can't train as effectively. And then if you look at the general health side of the scale, well, chronic inflammation is almost the root cause of, of every major disease. So let's get rid of the carbohydrate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to put it. I sell that to athletes a lot because obviously they were recovery is a huge part of it and I've got some questions to ask you further in a minute but you know giving them the the message that their their goal is to be anti-inflammatory and when they're putting in the refined carbohydrates they're creating the opposite environment there's their why there's their reason to lower the refined carbohydrates because they want to get rid of the inflammation to help recovery and subsequent performance yeah, if you can train more or get back to training more quickly um, or train with greater intensity, then in all those three situations, you're going to become a better athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, train with less injury. Yeah, that's another great point. So on the topic of recovery, how do you, I guess, tailor your LCHF approach to help recover from those high-intensity or, say, key weekly sessions? 
Well, I'm very much of the mind that some of the adaptations that occur from some of my higher intensity sessions are best left in a body that's slightly depleted. So I do have a, a mindset that I don't work on the uh, an older viewpoint of that, say, 30-minute to 60-minute window post-session on trying to glycogen replenish. So I, I know that there's a lot of research out there that um, for heightening fat metabolism and also getting some of the other physiological adaptations from the exercise stress from the higher or the key workouts that I perform, um, that I'm not in a great rush to immediately replenish. So I, I really um, am very much an LCHF guy pre-session and I'm an LCHF guy post-session, and I don't work on any strict period of time that I look to recover in because what I see in terms of my performance on a day-to-day basis in my training and then obviously in my race results is that I'm not getting better all the time. So what I mean by that is that I don't strictly adhere to a certain amount of carbohydrate or protein or fat. Um, I eat when I'm hungry. And I really eat around the typical meal times during the day. I have been known to spend elongated periods post-session, as I say, to maybe heighten the effect from that session and not replenish any lost glycogen too quickly. So it, 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 there's no real specific focus on post-workout recovery other than eating the, the same diet as what I eat on a day-to-day basis. So that's really interesting. I guess for our listeners, can you just clarify your LCHF? Do you work with grams per day or is it really that intuitive approach that you mentioned with eating when you're hungry? Uh, I, I, I would probably say that the very basic guidelines in and around how I changed was we went, keep your your carbohydrate under around about 100 grams per day. And then let's not be too specific in and around fat and protein intake. Just have a little bit at each meal. Um, And I did that for about a week. (laughs) And then I got bored of trying to measure. Mm. Um, And so it really came down to an intuitive approach because – If I was trying to lean up a little bit leading into um, races, then I do try to just maybe cut back a fraction in terms of the snacks that occur in between main meals. But other than that, I took some very basic guidelines in and around grams of fat and protein and carbohydrate for the first couple of weeks. But then when I realized that from if I was to obtain most of my day-to-day nutrition from just a real whole food approach, it didn't seem to matter as much anymore. Um, And then I just really, it was only with the cashew nut addiction where I actually probably found that I cocked it up a few times. (laughs) And the moment that I isolated it down to the cashew nut addiction, well, they became the thing that I controlled a little bit more. So other than that, it's really just eat on feel. Yeah, you're absolutely speaking my language here. I think some people, and particularly the A-types that we find in triathlon, can turn LCHF into another version of calorie counting, and then there's stress associated with that, and it completely does the opposite from an insulin point of view with, say, high cortisol levels, for example. So we need to look at a really relative approach, but certainly listening to the body, being intuitive and trial and error to, to turn it into something that's really, really sustainable with not too much counting and measuring. Yeah, the, the two things that are very easy to measure is how good do you feel in your training sessions and am I gaining weight or not or am I losing weight? Uh, you know, if either of those two change and you know that the carbohydrate is extremely low, then you just have to maybe manage the fat component just a fraction. But it's, you know, in, in nine out of 10 cases, the moment that that metabolism shifts towards preferential fat burning, it becomes very easy just to make those simple adjustments without having to weigh or measure. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So you obviously took two years for this process to get you to your your win. I get a lot of questions around when people should start an LCHF and if we could look at, a, say, a, a periodization point of view, what advice do you give to endurance athletes around commencing their metabolic efficiency approach? 
Well, I, th- I tend to, pr- and this is again a very much a generalisation because I, I tend to be quite an intuitive coach. Uh, and as much as I love the science, I, I, I also have to look at the art of it as well. And I do think that the ecto, meso and endomorph body types all respond slightly differently. Um, you know, I have a lot of very, very high carbohydrate consumers who are ectomorphs. Um, and I actually find that their adaptation or shift towards preferential fat burning is a little bit slower. They just seem to tolerate carbohydrate quite well. And they're, they're a harder sell as well because everyone thinks this LCH mes- uh, message is all around better body composition rather than just better health and better sports performance. And they go, well, I'm already lean, so yeah. why, why would I want to change? But, you know, I don't – from my own personal perspective, because I think I was fairly well fat adapted to start with, I didn't go through that sluggish period. And I know some people have suffered really – for a prolonged period and and suffered is probably not the the right word but had a real transitional phase between um high carbohydrate intake to becoming less reliant on blood sugars so if you were six weeks out i'd say don't do it i'd say stay a high carbohydrate athlete and let's do it after that race because yeah. I think that transitional period is too risky and also it will compromise potentially some of those key sessions leading into an event. If you're a little bit further afield, um, then I would give that message that I gave in the before, which was let's just reduce refined carbohydrate. Let's just go for a slightly more whole food approach and let's do some some fasted training sessions and we'll see where you're at. What I mean by that is tell me how you feel after the first hour fasted. Tell me how if, if you're already craving heart carbohydrate, if you can get to two hours or if you can get to three hours and what, what were the sensations around that? You know, were you thinking, God, I'm about to die or I'm, I need fuel, I need fuel, I need fuel. And that gives me some good anecdotal evidence to see how close they are to becoming a better fat burner. Um, but I would generally say that I would encourage most people if they're seriously going to do it to start at least 12 weeks out. Um, I would have thought it could have happened a lot quicker because it seemed to for me, but I seem to be a bit of an anomaly in that uh, area. And and because I've tested so many people metabolically now, I do sort of stand as an outlier. The majority of people aren't that well fat adapted. So I don't want to risk key races in making this change. Um, And I do say that it's a bit of a commitment this is not just for the race so I'm very prone to try to take in life and and ongoing health as one of the motivators for me as a coach Um, so I don't want people to use this as a quick fix and I do want them to become metabolically flexible so yeah I love that word because I I believe that's what I am it's not that I'm going to Although if I do have a bit of a binge on carbohydrate, I do find I become quite bloated and there's a lot of fluid retention with the extra carbohydrate that I'm storing at the time. But I don't have any sort of gastric upset or any feeling of nausea or illness that goes along with it. And in reality, at at times, I am going to eat carbohydrate. Um, Sourdough toast, uh, that's the thing that I miss the most. (laughs) Yeah, but being flexible is obviously a big part of it because you're not going to put on weight per se by one meal it's it's the big picture that counts and I think certainly you know this a really sustainable approach is important and if you're 12 weeks out for an from an Ironman then you've got a huge why and hopefully you know that's enough to keep you consistent with the approach but say if you're not racing or if you're in your off season so to speak then certainly a little bit more flexibility is reasonable. Yeah, definitely. I think I saw Vinnie Tortorich's quote today saying it's not what you eat between Christmas and New Year that's going to gain weight or muck you up. It's what you eat between New Year and Christmas. <laughs> and that's so true. I mean, I like when I went LCHF to start with, I was terrified of carbohydrate for the first few months, um, if not first year. And, and I was probably closer to a ketogenic uh, state than, than I admitted to because I I was fearful that I would turn all the good work around and it just doesn't happen that way. But I do think that you have to be fat adapted for a fairly lengthy period 
to be confident in that because it's like anything we, we 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 let slip and have a bit more carbohydrate and then it's quite surprising how much and how often that starts to slip back in again yeah it's largely behavioral isn't it yeah behavioral definitely yeah 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 and i think that's an important point you are obviously on your journey to fat adaption when you started and some people aren't so you know, it does come down to your glucose tolerance, uh, which is why we really need to make LCHF very relative. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're a if you're carrying a lot of uh, central obesity, you know, um, around that that midsection, then you're obviously very intolerant of dealing with carbohydrates and you do need to do some work there and and i think there are some people that really have to take that lch message and 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 metabolic flexibility may come in future years yeah so again as i say it's horses for courses um it really depends on i think the the type of or where you're at currently in terms of uh, body composition and your general health leading into maybe taking this approach yeah great point so I just wanted to um, share with our listeners, I, I heard one of your recent podcasts on Fitter Radio and you discussed a little bit about maybe some mistakes that you made with your approach to previous rate races with LCHF. Can you yep. dive in there for me, please, Bevan? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I have yet to find the solution. One of the things that you uh, I think a lot of people get an initial bounce effect in terms of weight loss and they therefore then become very confident, as I said, that the LCHF is a magic bullet and that they'll never be able to put on weight. And in most people's cases, they lose a lot of weight rapidly to start with, but it does stabilize and if not come back up again fractionally, um, even for exactly the same amount of nutrition. Um, so it's a little bit of the body maybe rebelling against that that rapid weight loss and it says, whoa, hold on, this is no good. So I sort of quite quickly maybe overate on the fat side of things. So I had to moderate that slightly. But I think the key thing that a lot of people experience is um, an increase in cramps. And that's been really hard to explain. And I heard a, a Tim Noakes podcast recently uh, where someone was asking him a lot about night cramps, cramps in the calves and the feet and the like. And his simple solution was just some static stretching before bed. And and I'm, st- I'm still not confident that that's the case because what derailed me at my first Ironman was the fact that I started to cramp entire body cramps and I'm talking in my hands and my forearms when my I was on my aero bars even changing gear my hands were cramping and so I think there was and again um, there's no science to suggest that the electrolyte balance in your body has any relevance in terms of why the body cramps Um, but I started to increase my electrolyte going into races and into the the last few weeks and and days before races and during race day and that seemed to be a cure for me um, on that front whether it was placebo or whether there is some neural response that the electrolytes actually positively affect and and so I never cramped in the second Ironman race that I did on an exactly the same diet so those were that was probably the the two the two biggest mistakes that occurred was um, just realizing that it isn't a magic bullet and I still needed to make sure that the fat intake didn't become too high but secondly probably I would have gone back and done some better simulation sessions before Ironman just to make sure that that cramp situation wasn't going to rear its ugly head on race day and get as close to race day intensity um, and pre-race nutrition as I could in the weeks leading into the event so that I could really eliminate the fact as to whether I was going to be prone to to cramping or not because I think cramping is something that a lot of people experience on this diet and I've yet to find a definitive answer as to why. Interesting. I think there's a few reasons. Like the new research shows that it is quite related to intensity. So you think about long training days, you're you're rarely racing at your race pace. So then when you try and implement that on race day, the the high intensity just isn't tolerable by the body and, and the cramps can set in there. So do you encourage your athletes to sort of factor in some of those race pace Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yeah, so the simulations leading into uh, race day have to have long sustained periods, especially on the bike at race intensity. See, the the beauty of something like Ironman is that race intensity actually isn't that hard. Um, You know, most age group athletes are only going to probably be going at around 
60 to 70% of their lactate threshold. And that tends to be, you know, if you use typical heart rate training, that's probably somewhere in zone two. Um, and they generally conduct a heck of a lot of their uh, training in and around zone two. So race pace, for some reason, once we say race, everything changes for a lot of athletes. <laughs> and a point of Ironman is just a massive training day for a lot of people. So yes, we do. And I, I coach a lot with power meters. So we're able to really pinpoint what is race intensity and then expose the athlete to that intensity whilst practicing their race day nutrition strategy well before the event. Yeah, absolutely. That's key. And just the last point on that, what about salt intake? So we know that LCHF does require a higher salt intake just because of the role that the kidneys play. Have you made some changes there with your metabolic efficiency approach? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it was traditionally in the first Ironman attempt, um, the way that I would have my race day nutrition available to me is that I would put all my gels into one water bottle and I would up the salt intake. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, I would... Um, uh, break open salt or electrolyte capsules and and put the salt and electrolyte capsules in on top of the the gels and then I would just mix it into a fluid with water um, and in the year that I suffered badly on cramp um, because I wasn't I was intending on taking as little nutrition as possible the only salt that was available was on the salted cashews that I had in my <laughs> in my rice bag uh-huh. there goes there goes those dreaded cashews again I was just about to say that they're your nemesis <laughs> aren't they they're the, 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 the root of all evil in my life <laughs> Um, so this time around, yeah, I definitely, uh, as I say again, the, there's no hard and fast evidence, but I made sure that I've used salt in the past to ward off cramp. And as I say, whether there's a direct relationship or it's placebo, I ensured that leading into the race, um, meals were salted a little bit more than what they normally are. And um, also I took a few electrolyte tablets just with water on the on the days leading in. And then obviously I had... You know, on race day, I have 30 gels. I, t- I actually consume over 100 grams of pure glucose in a race per hour on the bike leg of an Ironman. I don't and know if you should tell our listeners that. Uh, well, I, I, I don't, don't try it yet. Don't yeah, try please. There's the, there's the disclaimer. <laughs> well, that, that would shut most people's guts down. Absolutely. That's a really yeah. good point to make. Yeah. Please don't uh, try 100 grams an hour. Yeah. No, 100 grams, like, I mean, you know, even if you're going for a fructose glucose mix, say two, two to one mm. glucose to fructose, uh, the upper limit seen as 90 grams or around that, well, I go for pure glucose and I have absolutely no problems with absorbing over over 100 grams per hour, which is another reason why I've still got a lot of energy at the end of the marathon. That's a lot. Um, of- but I know people who could struggle with only 25. Yeah, you know, absolutely. A gel an hour is, is shutting their gut down in two seconds. So mm. maybe it's because I'm a fat bastard. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, great. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yes, no, no, definitely because... Because also with with taking um, refined and processed food out of your diet, a lot of sodium, um, that's where a lot of people get their sodium. Yeah. Uh, And they drop a lot of sodium the moment that they do that. And with less carbohydrate in the body, they're slightly less hydrated. You know, there's lots of reasons why they're going to lose those salts. Mm. So I do make sure that I I up my sodium um, leading into the race and on race day. Yeah, great point. And thanks for sharing that, giving away (laughs) all your secrets. (laughs) Well, maybe if people go out and try it, then there's going to be more people who who get gastric upset and it makes my race even easier. (laughs) It's all your fault. (laughs) No, I'm sure my my listeners are pretty aware of the carbohydrate grams per hour, so we've covered that quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, look, we're coming up to our hour and this has been absolutely fantastic. So much knowledge to share. Um, But before you go, Bevan, can you let us know what's next for you? What's on the cards for 2015? Um, well, I, as I say, went to the ITU Long Distance Worlds, um, had a great result there, and then came back and did the worst thing possible, um, which is to sit at a desk. <laughs> um, so I caught up on all my work, um, got into very poor positions, um, led a sedentary lifestyle, uh, got up and said, right, it's time to get back into training, and just got injury after injury. So I'm working my way through that because uh, I'll go back down to Challenge Wanaka um, in February to try and defend my race win down there. Um, But 
you know, I did nine hours and 55 seconds at New Zealand Ironman this year. And I think before I die, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm due to do a sub nine hour Ironman. I think you can find another minute. <laughs> so, so I think what I'm going to do is go back to New Zealand Ironman and, um, Touch wood, I can go under nine hours. And if I do that as a 44-year-old, I think um, I'm doing pretty good. Absolutely. I look forward to following your journey. And so just before we wrap up, can you share with us where our listeners can find you? Okay, so it's uh, uh, www.fitter.co.nz. Um, from there, you can see uh, what we do as a coaching company. Um, but also, if you're interested in uh, f- lots of discussion in and around sports nutrition and training and triathlon, then our podcast, uh, there's a link to our podcast, Fitter Radio, off that site as well. And that's a free podcast. And it's, um, you know, doing great things like your podcast is doing, you know, giving a lot of free information out there, uh, talking triathlon, talking training, and talking the intru- nutrition that supports that. Absolutely. I love Fitter Radio. So please go and check out that team <laughs> and follow Bevan at, um, at the URLs we'll put in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on board, Bevan. It was great to have you on The Real Food Reel. And I look forward to following your next few races. Okay, thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. We'll chat soon. See you, mate. Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. 2015 marks perhaps the most important event the Wellness Couch has ever conducted. We've had two sold-out wellness summits these last years, but honestly, nothing will come close to our first ever wellness breakthrough. Your favourite Wellness Couch experts, the Up For A Chat girls, Quirky Cooking's Joe Whitten, Stu Hayes, Marcus Pierce, and of course the Wellness Guys are all gathering in Dandong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough in February. For more information, go to www.thewellnesscouch.com. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavour to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.